temperatures, our hands, our belly. And we can notice the air element as movement. For instance, the movement of the abdomen, that's very obvious. But also other movements or sensations of tingling sometimes. If we do this, it can be an interesting meditation actually to meditate on the four elements. We start to notice that these elements are really there in our experience. And seeing the elements helps us to disidentify from this body. We don't see this body so much as belonging to self. As Ananayo writes, the main thrust of contemplation of the elements is to realize that none can truly be considered mine. And this is really crucial. We are going to speak more about it, but really this clinging to I, to me, to mine, to myself, is really the main problem that leads to suffering. And that's why in the Satipatthana, the Buddha really invites us to contemplate our experience in a way that can free us from this perception, from this way of looking. So this body is not really ours. It is made up by elements that have come from nature, that we share with nature, actually with everything. And in this way, contemplating the elements can also open the understanding of connectedness because we start to notice that the elements that we find in our own body can also be found in trees, in rivers, in mountains. Yes. And the last of the three body contemplations is contemplation of death or specifically the stages of decay through which a corpse would go if it were left out in the open. So the discourse describes a corpse, um, and I'm just giving you some examples. A corpse that is one day dead, or two or three days dead, bloated, livid and oozing matter, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals and various kinds of worms, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews and so on, the whole disintegration. To the final stage where the bones have crumbled to death. And we are asked to do this contemplation and to repeatedly compare this corpse to our own body. Traditionally, practitioners actually go to places where they meditate over corpses, like charnel houses. But one can also use visualizations to bring the fact of mortality to the mind. Such a practice can be quite challenging because it really goes against our tendency to ignore the fact that one day we are going to die that this is certain, even if we don't know when. Okay, so we have the three body contemplations, anatomical parts, elements and mortality, death. The next session of the discourse is devoted to contemplating feeling tones, Vedana. We are going to speak a lot about it tomorrow, but 
Vedana really call, um, refers to this so-called hedonic quality of our experience being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the instruction is straightforward. When feeling a pleasant feeling tone, one knows I feel a pleasant feeling tone. When feeling a painful feeling tone, one knows I feel a painful feeling tone. When feeling a neutral feeling tone, one knows I feel a neutral feeling tone. Each and every experience has an immediately felt quality, whether physical sensations or mental states. And the Buddha really highlighted this dimension, this quality, and instructs us to bring awareness to it. And we might ask, why? What's so important about this? It's really interesting that the Buddha considered feeling tones to be so important that he made them the topic of the second Satipatthana. The reason lies in the fact that feeling tones usually have a strong impact on us. They trigger our reactivity. They trigger wanting, craving, desiring, or not wanting, disliking, rejecting, pushing away, or boredom, spacing out, dissociating. An untrained mind is strongly governed by the impulsive reactions to feeling tones. And so often in our lives, we act under the push and pull of feeling tones. We move towards what is pleasant or what promises to be pleasant. We try to hold on to it or we move away from what is unpleasant, what hurts. And we ignore what is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So really contemplation of feeling tones helps us to bring awareness to the feeling tones themselves and to our tendencies, to the habitual reactions that are so often triggered and helps us to replace these automatic reactions with a more consciously chosen response. So rather than getting stressed out and anxious when we feel a pain during our meditation, we learn how to notice, okay, that's unpleasant. The feeling tone is unpleasant. And we have a chance not to just fall into the whole you know, sequence that can unfold from an unpleasant feeling tone. Do you understand? Not going into thinking about it, catastrophizing about it, you know, rumination, what Akinshino spoke about yesterday. Or when there is a pleasant smell hitting our nose, rather than just rushing towards the dining hall, we could pause and notice, oh, pleasant, mm, pleasant, and then make a conscious choice. Do I just want to rush and drop everything that I was doing? Or would it be maybe more skillful not just to go there impulsively but maybe you know finish my walking path or whatever you are doing in this moment so we train to become really aware of feeling tones rather than falling into reactive mode and i find it so interesting these three 
feeling tones, they offer us a possibility to simplify our experience into just these three categories. It's so simple. Sometimes we have huge stories and dramas going on in our minds. And by paying attention to the feeling tone, we can like boil it down and say, basically, I just hate it. It's unpleasant. Yes. Or it's just pleasant. So it helps us to see more clearly what is actually going on. So we had body, we had feeling tones, and now we come to the third of the four Satipatthanas, the contemplation of mental states. The instruction is to know the mental state as it is in this moment. Specifically, it says, one knows a mind with lust to be a mind with lust. One knows a mind without lust to be a mind without lust. And in the same way, one should know whether anger is present or not, whether delusion is present or not, whether the mind is contracted or not, whether it is distracted or not. So here, um, the Buddha basically covers the three unwholesome tendencies, the basic unwholesome tendencies that can um, really make us suffer, really lead to a lot of suffering. These three unwholesome tendencies of desire, of aversion and of delusion. So the instruction is to recognize what the mental state is in any moment to bring our interest and attention to the mind itself and with honesty and kindness and equanimity be aware of these unwholesome mind states rather than pretending they are not there. And this requires letting go of the story, turning towards the mind itself. That's not easy to do. It's not easy. Usually we are so caught up in a story, you know, what this person said and what I should have done and what they did. And we miss what is actually happening in our own mind. But that's the instruction here to turn the mind away from the story and look at the mental state. The point is not to judge ourselves or to fight those <laughs> mental states but really to know them, to learn how we can be aware of them without acting on them. And in another discourse, the Buddha once explained that it is only through clear acknowledgement of a defilement that we can actually then do something about it in a second step. And the other side not just noticing when a defilement, when such an unwholesome mind state is present, but also noticing when it is not present. The Buddha also continues that we should also know when the mind is great and to know when it's narrow, when it's surpassable and when it's unsurpassable, when it's concentrated and when it's unconcentrated, when it's liberated and when it's not liberated. These mind states are related to 
meditation practice, you know, to different uh, stages that we can go through, to states that unfold. And by contemplating mental states, we really start to notice how the mind changes, how it unfolds. (coughs) We become aware how impermanent also mental states are, um, how they never stay the same. Even within one retreat day, we, we go through so many different mind states. I don't know whether you have noticed over the last two days <laughs> so many different mental states that we encounter. And finally, we have the fourth Satipatthana, the contemplation of Dhammas. Now this word Dhamma, or in Sanskrit Dharma, can have many different meanings, depending on the context. Dhamma can mean law or truth or the teachings of the Buddha, but it can also refer to physical or mental elements or to phenomena. So it is a difficult term. So some Interpreters say that this Satipatthana, the forest Satipatthana, is about mental objects. But I find it not totally convincing because we already have mental objects in the earlier three Satipatthanas. And some of the contemplations in the forest Satipatthana are not confined to mental objects, but also include sense objects. So maybe another... Uh, interpretation would be helpful and we might wonder well what is left we have already covered body and mind and feeling tones so what is left basically we have covered everything now Analaya writes here the mental factors and categories constitute central aspects of the Buddha's way of teaching the Dhamma These classificatory schemes are not in themselves the objects of meditation, but constitute frameworks or points of reference to be applied during contemplation. During actual practice, one is to look at whatever is experienced in terms of these dhammas. So maybe we could say that contemplation of dhammas means that we now look at our experience in terms of such classificatory schemes or frameworks in terms of the Dhamma. So we contemplate our experience in the light of the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. We apply the Dhamma teachings to our experience and Through this we understand Dhamma, the truth or the the deep nature of all phenomena and we realize the highest of all Dhammas, which is liberation of the mind. One crucial aspect of the teachings of the Buddha is the teaching on conditionality and in this fourth Satipatthana we are invited to pay attention to the conditions that lead to certain mind states. And that's new compared to the, the three previous mind satipatthanas. Understanding conditionality is so very important for two reasons. One is 
that when we understand conditionality, how things come about, this will help us to make better choices, to act more skillfully. And the other one is that it makes us see that things and events are impersonal and insubstantial. Also our mind, our mental states are conditioned phenomena, which means they are not fixed. This is basically the positive message of this teaching, that mental states can be changed, they can be transformed. If the conditions are there for change, then the mind state will change. So it is through the conditionality that we actually have the possibility of transforming this mind, of growing, of liberating the mind, of unbinding it. Okay, so in this fourth Satipatthana we have different lists, you could say. And there are two lists that we find across all the different versions of the Satipatthana. One is hindrances, becoming aware of hindrances. We have spoken of them. And the other one is the, the awakening factors. I want to read to you one section from the hindrances <coughs> part. And how, practitioners, does one in regard to dhammas abide contemplating dhammas? Here, in regard to dhammas, one abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances. And how does in regard to dhammas, how does one in regard to dhammas abide contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances? If sensual desire is present within one knows there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is not present in within, one knows there is no sensual desire in me. And one knows how unarisen sensual de desire can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented. And then we have the same instruction for aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. So for all hindrances, the same is true. We should recognize when they are there, when they're present, and we should recognize when they're not there. And we should understand which conditions lead to the arising of hindrances and how can these hindrances be removed and how can a future arising be prevented. So you see, there is really a difference compared to the earlier Satipatthanas. Here we really start to see the workings of the mind. We understand the conditionality of all mental states and this will really also serve us navigating in our practice. So the other common contemplation that we find in all versions is the contemplation on the seven factors of awakening. And these seven factors of awakening are said um, to really be crucial. They are all needed if we want to unbind the mind. So 
this is a really, really important topic in our meditation that we start to grow and cultivate these seven factors of awakening. And they are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, collectedness or samadhi, that's what Akinshino spoke about yesterday, and equanimity. So these are the factors that we want to nurture and develop in our practice because they are conducive to awakening. So also here we find the same uh, instruction. If the mindfulness awakening factor is present within, one knows the mindfulness awakening factor is present within me. Or if the mindfulness awakening factor is not present within, one knows the mindfulness awakening factor is not present in me. And one knows how the unarisen mindfulness awakening factor arises and one knows how the arisen mindfulness awakening factor is perfected by development. So important to know when the, the, the awakening factors are present. And I really would like to encourage you to notice when these wholesome mind states are present. Really recognize and acknowledge their presence because mindfulness of them in itself strengthens them. So, um, all of these factors don't arise strictly sequentially. We can still say that there is a certain natural evolution. So this sequence, as you have heard, it begins with mindfulness. This is the first awakening factor that needs to be developed. And from this, very naturally, interest arises. When we are mindful, we become interested from interest energy comes. Energy leads to joy. Joy helps the mind to calm, to become more still. And this tranquility leads to concentration, samadhi. And samadhi then leads to equanimity. Okay, so I will leave the fourth Satipatthana there and not go into other lists that we can find in the Pali version of the Satipatthana Sutta. I really think that these two contemplations are really crucial and that's already a lot to practice with, to integrate them into our practice. Now there is something that I have left out so far speaking about this Sutta and this is a refrain. This refrain we find it repeated many, many times throughout the Satipatthana uh, discourse because it always comes in between two paragraphs. And I'm just going to read one example from the body contemplation. In this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, externally, both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body 
is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how in regard to the body one abides contemplating the body. And then the same applies for all the contemplations of feeling tones, mental states and dhammas. So here the Buddha adds specific instructions on how we should practice. By saying we should contemplate internally, externally, what does he mean? Basically, we're instructed to contemplate not just our own body or our own mind, but also include the bodies and minds of other people. This means that our field of awareness should not just be limited to our own body and mind, but that after contemplating internally, we should also broaden our awareness to include awareness of other bodies and minds. And of course, usually we don't have telepathic access to mental states of other beings, but we can train our sensitivity so that we better understand what is going on for others just by being aware of their facial expression, of their body language, of their gestures, for instance. Then we should also contemplate the nature of arising, of passing away, of arising and passing away. So for all the contemplations, no matter what the topic is, uh, body parts or mental states, we should attend to the nature of arising and passing away. This is something that is true for all phenomena, that they are impermanent. And the Buddha just keeps hammering this in. He just keeps saying again and again, pay attention to the impermanence, to the arising and passing away. Whatever you contemplate, be aware that it arises and passes away. So this brings our interest a little bit away from the specific object to the more universal characteristics of our experience. Then we have this strange uh, sentence, mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. According to Bhikkhu Analayo, we can understand this instruction that follows the impermanence contemplation to now be about a less structured form of, of meditation. So he interprets it as a sequence in our practice that after seeing arising and passing away we can just be aware without choosing or rejecting we can just dwell in a more open awareness and holding our experience lightly just knowing there is a body there is feeling tone there is a mind yeah so, just to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And then the last instruction is, 
and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Again, Analayo, not clinging to anything in this world, in the world, is the gist of the whole practice. Here, the world is the world of experience. And the question regarding this world is not to be or not to be, but to cling or not to cling. <laughs> Experiencing even a moment of independence described here <coughs> is a foretaste of liberation. This is the goal we are practicing for. This is the measuring rod for progress. What really counts are not special experiences, however profound they may seem. What really counts is the degree to which we can dwell without clinging to anything. So this is really the purpose of the Satipatthana practices, this freedom from clinging, from entanglement. So from the careful examination, investigation, contemplation of our experience, a profound understanding can grow and it helps us to mature on our path and to realize liberation. And the Buddha is really optimistic. He ends the sutta by making a strong prediction. Practitioners, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for one either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning, which is a very high state of awakening, let alone seven years, or six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month. If anyone should develop these four, four satipatthanas in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for one, either final knowledge, here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning. <coughs> so let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention and we are going to sit but maybe it's good just to open the windows briefly and then we are going to close the evening with a short sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.